On today's episode, Ashley shares the story of the DeFeo and Lutz families, two families who never met but are forever connected in the phenomenon known as the Amityville Horror. Welcome to Crime Bar. As I was staring to the left, I was reading the thing that said how to win friends and influence people. Yeah, that's Brett's book. And I know that's like a very popular book. Yeah. But can you imagine like reading that in public? Like anything more embarrassing than how to win friends? I don't think it's, I don't think it's embarrassing. Oh, okay, cool. (laughs) I think it's like endearing and embarrassing at the same time. Oh, Great book though. Have you read it? Four pages. Oh. Yeah, I've heard it's life-changing though. Maybe I should read it. I guess maybe all of us should. Uh, hi. So what do you have oh, for a, me today, Ashley? I have a story. Okay. I researched a story. All right. Very exciting. I'm going to do um, the Amityville Horror. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I know absolutely nothing about the real story. I thought it was just a, I was going to say Ryan Gosling movie. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds movie. Reynolds. Yes. Reynolds. Reynolds. Whenever I think of Am- Amityville. <laughs> Good luck saying that all the whole <laughs> story. Yeah. Whenever I think of Amityville Horror, I think of... Ryan Gosling looking crazy with his beard in front of the White House. Yeah, but then but I realized, but, I, but, the, but I'm picturing the notebook when he loses his mind. Oh, when does he lose his mind in the notebook? When Allie leaves him and he builds oh, that house. Oh, yes, and then the, in the oh, beard. I saw, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I always picture that for some reason, oh, but yeah. the wrong Ryan, so. Wrong, wrong Ryan, wrong movie. White House. Wrong movie. Wrong story wrong altogether. Wrong story it's all wrong. It's all wrong. But that's okay. I had to share it anyways. So I actually hadn't planned on doing this story, but it was in the news a few days ago. So I just kind of started reading, like casually reading up on it. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was not actually very familiar with it. I mm-hmm. think I, I didn't read the book, but I did see the original movie. Yeah. Like a million years ago. So I actually don't remember it. And then I did watch that Ryan Reynolds. One. Recently? No. Like oh, okay. When it came out. It came out in 2005. Uh, but I did watch that, and I don't have any memory of it other than he looked the good. physique. <laughs> yeah, you look nice. He was looking nice. Nice. And uh, I've only ever seen him in like comedies. Yeah. So seeing something where he was ripped, shirtless, and he got and some sweaty. darkness, and sweaty, gets sweaty a few times, and he's got some darkness in him, mm-hmm. and some panic in his eyes, and I yeah, love that. I was into it. Yeah. Yeah. So. I don't. I can't vouch for it being the way that not, you and I just looked at each other was like wild-eyed yeah, yeah. and nodding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you get it. You get vigorously. it vigorously. <laughs> so this story takes place in Amityville, mm. uh, which is a town on Long Island. And when I read that, I realized I don't actually have a concept for what Long Island is. Or I, where that is, I know. Well, I know it's in New York, and it's an island, and I assume it's long. It's long. But I always pictured Amityville was like some town in upstate New York. I was thinking Connecticut. Oh. I don't know, like a cute Massachusetts. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. So it's Amityville is a town on an island within a state. I guess. <laughs> Thank you for breaking that down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I needed that. Well, I needed it mm-hmm. because I didn't understand it. So House on an island in a state. Yeah. So in it's Amityville is like relatively small. Its population was less than 10,000 as of 2018, so I assume it was the same or maybe even smaller back in the 70s. 10,000 sounds like so many people. Whenever people are like, it was a small population of 6,000, and I'm like, I don't want to see 6,000 people. Well, no, you don't want to see them. <laughs> All at once. Yeah, but like, what? okay, so for like reference, what would 10,000 people be? Like 10,000 people. Well, yeah, duh, but I mean like <laughs> how many people fit in like a... The Staples Center. All right, let's Google. Yeah. Look at us learning. How, wait, how many people? 20,000. Oh, damn. So half of Staples Center lives in Amityville. Amityville. Yeah. That still feels like a lot. That's a big place. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay, well, anyways. Anyways, quaint. (laughs) 
It's quaint, yes. So on the evening of November 13th, 1974, 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo bursts through the doors of a local bar called Henry's. And when I read that, I pictured <laughs> I pictured him like slamming through like swinging doors in oh, an yeah. old saloon. And exact then it was same like, image. And then I was like, why? I also wrote, or I, I said that and I was, I started laughing as I was reading it mm-hmm. because obviously this is not an old Western. It's a bar it's in, in the 70s in Long Island. But I was laughing and I told Brett that and I was like, this isn't a Civil War era story. And he was like, Civil War? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I mean, old Western? Old Western movies? <laughs> but I Clint totally Eastwood? mixed that up. Yeah. I thought of the same thing though. And I've always wanted to make an appearance like that. Oh, hell yeah. Fling them open. Fling Everyone them open. looks at you. And then you walk in slow and you grab your holster. Holster. Gun. holster. But like to the music, like the beat of the music. Oh, yeah. I've always, I've, okay, another sidetrack. But whenever I leave a movie theater, since I was young, <laughs> I would think that the whole theater was looking at me and I would walk to the beat of the music, like a dramatic exit. So I don't know what that says about my personality oh type, my but gosh. I think someone had to have done that. Yeah, I'm sure. We, I'm sure everyone. I'm not the only one. I'm, I'm sure you're yeah. not. Uh, anyway, so I think the more accurate thing to say is that he pulled open a normal door at a faster than normal speed mm-hmm. and entered the bar. Okay. So he yells to the bar, to no one in particular, you've got to help me. I think my mother and father have been shot. And then he very dramatically falls to the ground and starts to cry uncontrollably. Oh, no. Like fetal position? I don't know. I just said. I hope that's so. just what they said is that he fell to the ground. Okay. I don't know if yeah. he's on his stomach, on yeah. his knees. <laughs> I need I some Google like, images. I, I have no idea. <laughs> so like tons of bar patrons are like, oh my God, what's wrong? They're all yeah. crowded around him trying to figure out like what, what the hell are you talking about? And most of them were his friends. They, yeah, people who knew town. him. Yeah. 10,000, you yeah. know, <laughs> half of the Staples Center. Mm-hmm. So a few of his friends decide to gather him up and go to his family's home to investigate. And why they thought to do that, rather than call the police, I don't know. So they get back to Ronald's car and they drive the few short blocks to his parents at 112 Ocean Avenue. Ronald actually went by the name Butch, so that's what I'm going to call him going forward because his dad's name is Ronald Sr. Okay. So they, <laughs> and Butch is the obvious choice as a backup plan. Obvious, obviously. <laughs> so they get to the house and um, the house is like, it's like really pretty. Mm-hmm. It's... um. This old like Dutch colonial. It's very like East Coast in my opinion. Stately, if you yeah, will. It's, yeah, it's a two-story home. It's directly on the water. It looks very idyllic. And you know how like some people name their houses? It's a rich people move. For sure. Yeah. But they named their house High Hopes. That's kind of cute. Yeah, it is cute. And they had this little sign outside mm-hmm. that would like blow in the wind. And all the neighbors like knew that house is the High Hopes house. That's, a, that's very likable. It's very cute. I like the name. Yeah. So Butch stays inside his car while his friends go into the house. The home is completely dark and eerily quiet. Mm -hmm. The only noise or movement is coming from the family dog, Shaggy, who is in the kitchen tied up to a door. Okay. They find Butch's parents, Louise, who was 42, and Ronald Sr., who was 43, in their bed, face down, each of them dead from two... gunshot wounds to their backs so this is when someone's like okay now we got to call the police because before butch was just just saying i think someone shot my parents right now it's confirmed exactly so that's when they call the police the suffolk county pd arrives and searches the home and they discover that louise and ronald senior are not the only victims there are four other children don who is 18 allison who was 13 Mark, who was 12, and John Matthew, who was nine years old, were all dead. My God. Yeah. They were also found in their beds face down, also killed from a shotgun. But each of the kids had one shot to their backs. First, like the parents had two shots to theirs. Mm-hmm. So I don't. What that screams to me is someone that knows them. They're yeah. all face down. Can't make eye contact. It's yep. too personal. And it's quick. You sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> I have a crime podcast with my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> so Butch, being the oldest child of the family and obviously the last surviving member, was just absolutely inconsolable. Mm-hmm. He was still crying hysterically. He refused to enter the home. 
and he was sitting in his car. He was like banging on the dashboard and yelling, oh, my family is dead. Oh, my family is dead. So once he finally calms down, the police convince him to enter the home and give a statement at the kitchen table. So while this is happening, one of Butch's friends who had come with him back from the bar called Butch's paternal grandfather, Rocco DeFeo. Great name. Right. Rocco arrives within minutes of this phone call. He gets there so quickly, he even beats the homicide unit. Where does, does he live close by? I guess. Okay. Well, yeah, he had to have, but like. I'm just picturing him hiding in the backyard and that's suspicious or something. No, no, he he did live close, but I just mean it it happened so quickly that even the homicide unit hadn't arrived there yet. It was just the general like police. I don't know Mm -hmm. what the fuck they're called. Like the cops, the cops, but like not a detective. I I get what you're saying. So Rocco asks one of the cops if he can make a phone call and the cop said, yes. So he goes to the hallway and discreetly dials a number. But then when he realizes that the cop is watching, he hangs up and he kind of mumbles something about like, oh, I got the wrong number. He picks it back up. And this time he tries to shield the number he's dialing. And what he doesn't know is that the cop is still watching and saw the numbers he dialed and wrote them down. Okay, so he's literally not smooth at all. No, but he's, he, was, he was definitely trying to be. He's like a dude when they text and they lean their phone really far away from the girl as they're texting and they think they're being so smooth. <laughs> yes, exactly. So Rocco has a muffled, short conversation with whoever was on the other line and then hangs up. And this is the point where Butch quietly told the police that he felt unsafe being at the crime scene because he had reason to believe that his family was targeted by the mob. Why do people always blame the mob? I don't know. So police took Butch into custody, not as a suspect, but for his safety. They took him to the station where he told them he believed his family was murdered by a man named Louis Fellini. Fellini was allegedly a hitman for the Genovese crime family. He explained to the detectives that Fellini had briefly lived with the family and knew of an area in the basement where they had cash and other valuables stashed. So cut to the night of the murders, Butch said that he was asleep in the home and that he woke up to Fellini standing over him, pointing a gun in his face and demanded that he get up. So he said he did as he was told and followed Fellini from room to room as he killed his family while they slept. He then said that Fellini disposed of all of this evidence in a sewer in Brooklyn. So the police allow Butch to sleep overnight at this station And they return to the crime scene for a very long night of trying to figure it out. They verify that the phone number they witnessed Rocco dial earlier was registered to a man in Manhattan named Peter DeFeo. Peter was Rocco's brother, so it doesn't seem very unusual that he would have called his brother to inform him that his son and daughter-in-law and a bunch of his grandkids were just murdered. Mm -hmm. But as it turns out, Peter DeFeo is a capo in the Genovese crime family. Okay, so real quick, because it was it's been on my mind since you first said the G, the G word. Uh, is G it like word. Genovese? Yeah, is it Genovese? <laughs> oh, okay, I don't like how I said that, but like pasta Genovese. Is it Genovese? They um, like that. It's like a vegetable pasta, multi vegetables pesto. Genovese. Uh, Gen- okay, it's spelled G E N O V E S E. Yeah, I like thought it pasta. was Genovese. Genovese. Okay, hold on, I'm gonna look this up. You have to say it like that if I'm right. Genovese. Genovese. I'm only calling you out because of my omnipotent situation <laughs> last week. <laughs> that's, okay, that's fair. Friends don't let friends <laughs> let those things slide. I can finish the sentence. I'm curious. Genevieve. How to pronounce Genevieve. <laughs> okay, here it is. Oh, God, hold on. This is... Okay. Buongiorno. Let's try this. Oh, oh, it feels good. Oh, I'm never right. So that feels really good. Good job. Genovese. Genovese. That, is that what he just said? Genovese. Correct. Okay. Well, I say it a couple more times and I'm going to call it Genovese because I... Let's just stick with it, you know. What was it? Genovese. Genovese. Okay, I'll say it. Yeah. I'll try to. Got it. Anyways, so Peter DeFeo mm-hmm. is a capo in the Genovese oh. crime family. Yeah. Do you know what a capo is? <laughs> no. Okay. 
I wasn't going to ask, but I figure this is a good time to, what is the cup I love of? that you're like, you, no, no. Like, why would I? Well, I don't know. I just, it's, they're higher up. Okay. I didn't they're know it was like, like Capricorn or something. It's supposed to, it's short for a captain, but captain in Italian, which I also don't know how to pronounce. Capo. So they call him Capo. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Anyways, this is not a fucking lesson on something <laughs> that, okay. I didn't even do research on that. I just assumed for some reason you were going to know what a Capo was and that you would explain it to you us. You should not assume anything. I, but I don't know why I thought that. I'm flattered, And I'm actually. realizing in this moment, I don't know why I thought that. I'm flattered, weirdly. <laughs> okay. That you think I have that much knowledge in here. Yeah, I don't know. So the f- th- he is very high up mm-hmm. in the mob, in a specific, in one of the families. So that gives Butch's concern and his statement more credibility that totally. he thinks his family was targeted by the mob and that he didn't feel safe being there. Seems valid. Right. However... The more they search, the more the cops search this house, the more they start to suspect that Butch wasn't being completely honest. Mm-hmm. They found multiple boxes of ammunition that belonged to the murder weapon in Butch's bedroom. And then after interviewing more of his friends, they find out that Butch is a gun fanatic and owns the same type of rifle that was used to kill the family. And that Butch has a very volatile relationship with his father, Ronald Sr., so they return to the station the next day and wake him up for more questioning. Within hours, they were able to verify that Louis Fellini, the guy who he claimed had mm-hmm. killed his family, had a rock-solid alibi out of state for the night of the murders. And the deeper they get into this interview with Butch, the messier his story becomes. Not shocking. No. A new discrepancy came out like every few sentences until finally one of the detectives asked, did it really happen that way? And Butch broke down and said, no, it all started so fast. Once I started, I couldn't stop. It went so fast. He then admitted that after killing everyone in the early morning hours, he thinks around 3 Mm a.m., he took a bath, put on fresh clothes, packed up the evidence containing his bloody clothes, the gun, and other little bits like that, and disposed of it on his way to work a few hours later. Then that evening, he pretended to come home and find his family was dead and in a, you know, supposed moment of shock, ran to the local bar for help. Okay. He told the detectives that his family was very deeply connected with the mob and that did play a role in him killing them. He claims that about a week before the murders, Butch was taking a large sum of cash to deposit in the bank for his dad and Fellini robbed him before the deposit was made. He claimed that when he informed his dad of what had happened, his dad called him a liar and accused him of stealing the money for himself. He claimed that the reason he killed them is because he was afraid of his mom's father, so his grandfather and his mom's side, Michael Brigante Sr., because he was well-connected with the Gambino crime family. He also said that he was very afraid of his father's uncle, Peter DeFeo, because he was a capo Mm -hmm. in the... What was it? Genovese, Genovese crime family. So apparently both sides of his family were very deeply involved and connected. And given that Rocco's first call was to a capo, again, whatever the fuck that means, mm-hmm. it did give a ton of weight to that, to Butch's story. Okay. So this um, is legitimate. This, this the is mob very is legitimate. Involved. It's extremely wow. okay. legitimate. So assuming that the, the robbery story with Fellini is true, mm-hmm. And he did steal the money. Or if he didn't really, if that story wasn't true and Butch actually did steal the money for himself, he either way, out of fear, felt like it made sense to murder his whole family because I guess he thought that some mob was going to come at him. I don't know. Okay. There's no logic no, it, I'm but, trying to put the pieces But it was together. connected to his fear, supposedly. Of the mob. And he had a very... his. I read claims that his dad was very, very abusive. Okay. So there's that too. But then when it comes to Rocco calling his brother Peter, it doesn't necessarily mean that Butch should have been afraid in that moment. Like it, it's not like he was calling to be like, I think my grandson did this. We got to do something. Mm-hmm. He just found his son and daughter-in-law and his family. He wiped found out. that they yeah. were all completely wiped out. And if his brother is high up in the mob, and you want to know who did this? It's not very unusual for him to have called to to get to help. Inform yeah, somebody. we do, we don't know why he called or what was said, but it's not necessarily suspicious. Suspicious, it, yeah. 
um, or, you know, like he was trying to target his no. only grandson, surviving grandson or whatever. Do you get what I'm trying to say? I totally get what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying it very eloquently, but no, like. No, you're saying that he does, just because he did the call doesn't mean that he's guilty in any way of like wanting he, to harm somebody. Exactly. He may have just wanted their help finding who did it. Yeah, of course. Just at the time they didn't know that it was his grandson in the other room. Mm-hmm. So anyways, um, that's kind of the extent of the mob thing. And I just yeah. found that really interesting because Very. I didn't know until researching this that there was any familial legitimate ties to the mob. Yeah. So while he was in custody, Butch inquired multiple times when and how he could collect on his father's $200,000 life insurance policy. So there's that big indicator yeah. in terms of motivation. Big giveaway. And obviously he couldn't collect on it. So 11 months after the murders, the trial began on October 14th, 1975. The defense attorney, William Weber, tried to build a case of temporary insanity for his client. He claimed that Butch heard voices in his head while in the home, and it was those voices that instructed him to carry out the murders. The insanity plea was supported by the psychiatrist for the defense, but the psychiatrist for the prosecution disagreed. He stated that Butch had antisocial personality disorder, and even though he regularly ingested heroin and LSD, he was fully aware of his actions the night of the murder murders isn't antisocial personality disorder like being a sociopath is that what that's the same thing right i actually have no idea yeah i think that's like it would have been a good thing for me to look up and and add that but i didn't because my my little brain's working hard right now and i remember reading something in the dsm-5 that sociopath is not like a legitimate psychological term or Mm. psychology term but antisocial personality disorder is well perhaps perhaps (laughs) perhaps i'm gonna do the the brett (laughs) pushing up the glasses push up your fake glasses Perhaps it is. The other issue with the insanity plea um, is that none of his family seemed to wake up from multiple shots. There were no signs of a struggle with any of the victims. There wasn't even signs of movement. And the police were able to verify that the rifle used to kill everyone was not outfitted with a silencer. That means someone pulled the trigger on a rifle inside a home eight times at 3 a.m. while everyone slept, but no one got up. That literally makes no sense to me. Right. So Louise, the mom, she was found curled up underneath blankets in bed, but the police think that she may have woken up from the noise. They also determined that 13-year-old Allison also woke from the noise, but she was also bundled up under her blankets with no sign that she had tried to move. So I'm, I'm just speculating that maybe Louise and Allison's eyes were open. Okay. And that indicated that they had woken up, but they weren't awake long enough to move or maybe they couldn't move because the police believe that Butch likely drugged all of his family members before they went to bed to ensure that he could kill them all without any struggle. Literally what I was about to say when I put my hand up to to volunteer (laughs) my opinion once again, I was poisoned for sure. So yeah, the, well, not, not necessarily poison, but just drug them something. Yeah. And they were all found on their stomachs. A very Which uncomfortable was, position to sleep and, in. And it's, you know, four or five, six people. So maybe they are a family of stomach sleepers. I don't yeah. know. Or they're all so heavily drugged that they all just collapse, collapse onto their bed, I guess, maybe. Or he just kind of look them in the eye. and That too. Yeah. yeah. So the insanity case was just bullshit, yeah. obviously. On November 21st, 1975... Ronald DeFeo Jr. was convicted on six counts of second-degree murder and was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison six times over. So he was basically sentenced to a minimum of 150 years. But even after sentencing, Butch started to change his story, and he continued to do it for the rest of his life. So the first story started out as it was a hit by the mob, and he was high on weed in the basement and missed the whole murder. He said being high prevented him from hearing the shooting. And because I know that. Does it work like that? I was going to say, like, (laughs) I know because you've never smoked weed. And so I'll go ahead and, like, clarify to you and any other narcs that are listening. Weed does not work like that. No. No. Then the next story was it was actually Butch who did this out of fear of the mob. Then it was actually voices he heard in the home urging him to kill his family. Then it was actually the voices of his family plotting to kill him, so he killed them first. 
then it was actually his sister Dawn who killed everyone and he killed her when he realized what she'd done. Then actually it was he and Dawn who decided to kill their parents together. But then Dawn went rogue and killed their siblings so there wouldn't be any witnesses. And when Butch discovered that, he killed Dawn in a rage. Then it was actually his mom, Louise, who had killed everyone, then killed herself. So the illogical list just goes on and on. But yeah. everyone knows he did it. And his ever-changing story where he blamed dead relatives um, just Pretty further proved up. his mental state. So Butch goes to prison. And now the family home sits empty. And I'm not sure when exactly it went up for sale but a month after butch was convicted a young family closed escrow on the house they snatched it up for eighty thousand dollars but that was in 1975 so murder house too right so in 1975 dollars that's just under four hundred thousand dollars still a steal well yeah okay so that's what like a bunch of articles like referred to it as as a steal um but I don't know. Is that a steal? I would think so. Four hundred grand. I mean, I'm thinking L.A. money, I guess, and that could yeah, buy you. Yeah, you can't. Get, don't compare it to L.A. A lot not, in a bad part of town, type of thing. But yeah, um, I don't know. I think if I think if a lot of people have died in that home, then I think that that's priced accurately. You know what I did see is that in the last few years, like in the last ten, mm-hmm. one of the most recent times that it that this house sold, it was for over a million. So maybe that's what it is. Isn't there something with real estate where if it's a certain amount of time later, you don't have to disclose that there's been a murder? I think that's state by state. Okay. Every, but there's there's no hiding this. this. This house becomes really famous, which is what we're about to get into. But I also failed my real estate test, so don't take advice from me. Well, but what was the advice? <laughs> oh, don't listen to me, I guess, oh, is what okay. I'm saying. All right. Well, I guess so what I'm saying is if the place is nice enough that in today's money, it's mm-hmm. over a million dollars over a million dollar house. Got it. Then I guess 400,000 is a steal. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's up for debate. All right. Anyways. So George and Kathleen Lutz happily moved in with their three young children. The home was really beautiful. They got it for a bargain and they allegedly weren't familiar with the crime that took place just the year prior. So they claimed this was a really positive, albeit somewhat naive decision. It's like the beginning of every horror movie. Yeah, like, but they were local to the area. So the I don't really I don't believe that it. they didn't know. And I also read some reports that they did know the, about the murders, but they weren't uncomfortable living there. And then some other reports stated they knew of the murders and that's why they wanted to live there. So we don't know. The news, man. You can't get one straight story. Yeah, but I also like now we're going to get into this, their whole experience in this house. And it's fairly like widely believed to be a hoax now. Yeah. And so I'm just going to go ahead and clarify that I don't believe it. <laughs> I think it was all a hoax. Mm-hmm. So for attention. Yeah. So the way that I'm presenting it is like, I'm not saying that I believe it and I'm not trying to sell you on it or convince you of it. I think it's a bunch of BS. I still want to hear. Yeah. I'm still going to tell you. Okay, cool. <laughs> so when they moved in, a friend of George's suggested that they should have a Catholic priest bless the home given what had happened. And George said that he was a Methodist, so he wasn't familiar with, like, blessing a home. Okay. But Kathy was a Catholic, and so she was just like, yeah, let's do that. That's great. There's Mm -hmm. no harm in it. So the day that they're moving in, the family is moving in boxes, and this priest comes, and it's not something that they, like, walked through the house to do together. They just sort of let the priest go room to room and, like, flick the water and say stuff or whatever. Do his thing. Do his thing. And when he was all done blessing the home, he met George out in the front yard as he was bringing in some boxes and he didn't really say anything. George like asked like, how did it go? How much do I owe you? And he was like, the vibes. Yeah. And he was like, no, you don't pay me for this. And then he just sort of left. That was it. Okay. Nothing was really communicated, Mm -hmm. but supposedly the priest did experience something sketchy while he was blessing one of the rooms. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, he didn't tell George in that moment, but I guess it was weighing on him. So he called a few days later. Can you imagine the priest calling up and being like, some sketchy stuff happened? Yeah. So I've been thinking about that. In that exact verbiage. (laughs) Yeah. Something not so chill happened. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) He told him that while he was in one of the bedrooms, he flicked the holy water 
and then promptly felt an invisible hand slap him across the face and a masculine voice yell out, get out. In true like horror story form, as the priest was trying to relay this over the phone, this mysterious static came up and George couldn't get the full scope of what the priest was trying to say. Yeah. But he did piece together that the priest was trying to convey something about a specific bedroom. And when George informed him that they weren't using that as a bedroom, but Kathy was actually using it as a sewing room, mm-hmm. the priest just said, oh, good, as long as no one sleeps in there. Smart. <laughs> I mean, I just, I can't fathom being like, oh, okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> Have a good evening. <laughs> hang up. Like, hang I, can't, up. I can't picture that. It's just so weird. But almost immediately, like after moving in, the family says that they started experiencing strange things. George claimed that he started to wake up every night at 3.15 a.m. on the dot. Friggin' witching hour, yeah. I'm telling you. And he could never pinpoint what woke him. It was just always like, boom, his eyes were open and he was just very awake. And supposedly that's when Butch killed his family. So it's supposed to be like a, a spooky. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't know if I'm going to say this eloquently. Um, like I always seem to speak. Um, but I, for the, as long as I can remember, have woken up at 3.30 a.m. And because oh, I Wait, have, what? Yeah, that's literally, I, I came into the kitchen and told you this. Very concerned. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? Wait, what? But yeah, yeah, I do remember that. I always wake up at 3.30 a.m. It's kind of like my pee hour. But mm-hmm. it's always, n- nothing is waking me up. It's just like this feeling. And I look at my clock, 3.30 a.m., which freaks me out because I've seen The Conjuring. I've seen yeah. every scary movie and yeah. it's always 3, 3.15, 3.30, something along those lines. Something in the three o'clock hour. And I Googled it, as one should, and it turns out I'm not haunted or in the presence of a haunting or anything like that. It's actually our circadian, circadian, circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. And there's something about waking up at three where one cycle completes and then another one begins. And that's why a lot of people have their deepest sleeps after three it's like i get my best sleep from like three to seven okay and i get and i could be wrong but that is something that a website said and i'm going with it yeah i prefer that over satan i'm gonna believe that too no that makes more sense okay so there you go we're already poking holes in this story Mm -hmm. so then another odd thing that they discovered was that they could never get the heat to work they had it serviced and verified that everything was in working order but it never warmed the house Mm mm-hmm Instead, they had to bundle up constantly because it was consistently like 50 degrees inside all the time. And some parts of the house had like even colder pockets of okay freezing temperatures. And this is New York in December, so obviously it's already very cold. One would get already. a chill. Yeah. And so because of that, George became like obsessive about the fireplace because it was the only source of warmth. And he like literally obsessive about maintaining it and you know just whatever I don't know man stuff I guess they would hear doors slam in rooms that nobody was in they would see kitchen cabinets slam shut on their own they found some doors like hanging off of their hinges as if someone like tried to like rip it from the hinge yeah that I don't like I don't like that either they started hearing strange jolting sounds that would wake them in the middle of the night and they could mm-hmm. never figure out like what it was. It would just, some loud bang would wake them up. Kathy started experiencing strange sensations of being touched by someone who wasn't there, similar to what that priest claimed that he felt when he blessed the home. Mm-hmm. And then the kids started to experience odd things as well. Their daughter, Missy, claimed that a ghost named Jody had befriended her in her bedroom. She said that Jody often presented herself as a pig, but she could also change form into anything else whenever she wanted. So George and Kathy were like aware of this like pig ghost girl. And one night, George said he and one of their young sons heard a strange sound at the window mm-hmm. and they looked up to see a pig's face with glowing red eyes peering back at him. And Missy told him, it was Jody, and Jody wanted to come inside the house. A question. Okay. Um, is Jody the name of one of the kids that no. was murdered? No. Okay. Just so a, it's just a random girl. Just a, yeah. The parents and the children all claimed to smell really bad odors throughout the house with no apparent source. Sulfur? 
smells? I, um, I don't know. They just had like bad odors and mm-hmm. it would just all of a sudden be a really bad smell and then it was gone. Okay. So they could never like try to trace, you know, what if there's was. like a dead rat somewhere or something like that. They couldn't do anything like that. They also reported finding green slime oozing down the walls and coming out of keyholes and like electrical outlets. They should have stopped at the door hinge loud noise thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So despite these creepy experiences, George said that he had no desire to leave the home. It was like the home wanted him to stay, so it made the idea of going out feel wrong somehow. So George said that they stopped going out to socialize and instead would just invite their friends over to the house. Smart. But Smart. even but even their friends claimed to witness some of this paranormal activity. Like, for example, they would put the kids to bed upstairs and then the grownups would go downstairs and sit in the kitchen and they would hear what sounded like a ton of people upstairs walking around, which like I get why they were trying to sell that as like a scary thing, but couldn't have just been the kids who like were like, I don't want to go to bed now that that you guys are downstairs drinking. I'm going to get up and play like that would I mean, that would make more sense to me. Yeah, I think so. Did they say the the seat? Oh, did they see the uh, green ooze coming out of the keyholes? The friends? Yes. No. Okay. Which is convenient. I know. So one day, Kathy said that she woke up and she looked in the mirror to find that she had morphed into an ancient looking woman, like an old hag, if you will. She said no matter which mirror she looked in, she only saw the image of an old woman and it took hours to fade to her normal self. Maybe she just needs to start using an anti-aging cream. It's startling (laughs) for all of us. It's shocking to all of us. Then comes this big, particularly scary night. George said everyone was asleep and he woke up to find Kathy was levitating above their bed. And then they hear the sounds of their children's beds in the next room violently slamming up and down and into the walls. But an unseen force held George and Kathy in place so that they couldn't run to their crying kids. I have like this weird thing where even though I call BS too, I don't like to talk about um, exorcism stuff negatively. Like kind of like I don't like to say that aliens aren't real just in case there's something listening. In case they're listening. And then they're like karma and then they get me next. So I always am very open to it if anyone's listening Listening. right now. Yeah. You exist. Yeah, we don't want no demons here. But no disrespect either. No yeah, disrespect. exactly. Okay. Um, so this was the breaking point for the family. So as soon as this, whatever unseen force was, let go of them, um, they ran and grabbed the kids and they left the house that night and never came back. They didn't pack any bags. Mm-hmm. They just got in their car and did not look back. Got the heck out of there. They claimed... That literally they get in the car and then drive to Kathy's mom's house and they claim that this demonic force followed them there and and then they get into her Kathy's mom's house. Okay. They get in and this demonic force is still following them and this green ooze, like waves of green ooze follows them up the stairs. Like slime trails? Like, slime. like a snail? Yeah. Like Nickelodeon slime. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. So then a few days later because they refused to go back to the house, they sent movers to the to go in and do everything for them. And the movers reported no paranormal activity and nothing strange while they were in there packing. So the Lutz family lived in that house for a total of 28 days. Two months after fleeing, a local TV crew was granted access to the home to conduct a sort of seance, I guess. The crew brought in ghost hunters, psychics, and other paranormal experts to investigate the Lutz family's claims. They spent a total of five hours in the home, and all of the paranormal experts agreed there was definitely, most definitely, a demonic force in the house. Like, yeah, that was the general consensus for them. However, the news crew, like, claimed to feel nothing at all. Yeah. One of um, the paranormal experts told one of the reporters named Marvin Scott, quote, Marvin, this is the closest to hell I ever want to get. I just want to know if they use that in the movie. It's like a great one-liner. I don't know. Yeah, they, they should have. <laughs> I actually don't know. They're listening. The team of people took various photos throughout the house during their visit. But given that it was, you know, in the 70s, it wasn't until later after leaving the home and developing the film that they claimed to have captured a demonic presence on camera. So I'll show you the photo. 
No, uh, I hate that. Yeah, they claim it's a photo of a demonic boy peeking out at them through a door frame. I don't love his eyes. Yeah, that's what's scary is like, I his absolutely uh, hate that. Yeah. Okay. His so his eyes are like so. It's a black and white picture. We'll put it up on our website and Instagram and stuff too. But it's a black and white photo of a little boy wearing peering. a plaid shirt. Oh, is it plaid? Yeah, it looks plaid. Well, he's peeking out of like a door frame mm-hmm. and his eyes are just like little laser It's just lights. white, which is kind of like what your cat looks like when you take a picture of them with flash. Yes, but- exactly. Yeah. So in March of 1977, a new family purchased the home for 55000 No, I think that's a bargain. Yes, it is. Um, but after moving in, they publicly debunked some of the Lutz family claims pertaining specifically to property damage. Like, for example, all the doors and hinges and drywall, it all looked to be in completely original condition. In fact, the entire house seemed to be in its original condition. Mm -hmm. And the heater worked just fine. So then a few months later, in September of 1977, Jay Anson published his book, The Amityville Horror, A True Story. George and Kathy had collaborated with him to write this book based on their alleged experience in the home. It has sold over 10 million copies since its release and then was later adapted into a film by the same name. The film premiered in 1979 and starred James Brolin and Margot Kidder as George and Kathy Lutz. It grossed over $80 million in the United States and became one of the highest grossing independent films of all time. But after the movie's release, obviously tons of skeptics like didn't believe George and Kathy. The couple had been in major financial distress before moving in. So they, a lot of people claimed that this was just like a ploy for money. But they did take a lie detector test and passed. But I don't really think that matters because those aren't foolproof. Then, in 1979, after the film released and became a huge success, William Weber came out and publicly said that he, George, and Kathy came up with the horror story over, quote, many bottles of wine so do you remember who that was in the story william weber was the defense attorney for butch in oh his trial. my god yeah, for murdering his family so supposedly he was the one who came up with this insanity plea yeah. where he's hearing voices in the house and stuff like that um and it didn't work obviously so supposedly after butch went to jail Weber decided to reach out to the new owners of 112 Ocean Avenue. After they became friends and concocted this plan to profit off the home's infamy, Weber was supposedly the person who had connected the Lutz family with a writer named Jay Anson to write a book on their experience. But then apparently through that messy process, George and Kathy cut Weber from the deal. So between the book deal and the film adaptation? adaptation of it, the Lutz family reported that they made $300,000 from those two things. So Weber sued them for $60 million. Fair. It's totally fair. But then what made me laugh is that um, he was only awarded a whopping 2500 <laughs> I just like that they're so committed to this lie that they're trying to profit off of something that they made up I and know. they're sticking with it. I know. It's embarrassing. And George and Kathy Lutz maintained for the rest of their lives that their story was true. Although in 2006, George did admit to possibly embellishing some of the details for entertainment's sake, but he still maintained that it was all real. Their children, on the other hand, have grown up to say it was all a hoax orchestrated by their parents for fame and money, Mm -hmm. and that any spooky stuff they experienced had less to do with the house and more to do with George's involvement with the occult. I have a... I feel like I trust these kids. Yeah. So George and Kathy divorced in 1988 and Kathy died in 2004 and George died in 2006. Since the Lutz family's departure, the home at 112 Ocean Avenue has been bought and resold many times. It's been extensively remodeled. The house number has been changed to deter looky-loos and you can no longer view it in maps or Google Street View. Every single family who has lived in the home since it became infamous has maintained that they have never once felt or seen anything evil or remotely paranormal in the home. They all agree that the only 
upheaval experienced came from nosy members of the public who regularly came onto the property to harass them or vandalize the structure or even peek through the windows. Ugh. Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. was denied parole at every opportunity, and he died in prison almost two weeks ago on March 12th, 2021. That's how the story came up for me. His death was like all over the yeah, news. Very so recent. That's, I just thought it was interesting to cover it. Marvin Scott, a reporter who was present for the seance after the Lutz family had fled, wrote an article on his participation in that 1977 like investigation. He said, quote, It surely was a night to remember. As I've often said when asked if I was frightened the night I stayed there, absolutely not. The two hours I spent watching the movie with a rowdy, pot-smoking audience was much more of a horror than the five hours I spent in that house in Amityville. Butch himself scoffed at the idea that there was paranormal activity in the house. He stated that that whole idea was concocted by his defense attorney and other people to try to pursue movie and book deals. He told reporter Marvin Scott, quote, there was no demon. You know who the demon is. I am the demon. And that is the true story behind the Amityville horror. Okay, first of all, that's nuts. Second of all, how, what does Butch know? Because if it was like an actual haunting, it was the haunting was caused because he murdered this entire family in the house. So for argument's sake, the spirits that are haunting the new family is because of him. So he didn't experience it. Okay, I see where you're going with that. Okay, yes. I'm just argumentative today. It's, it could be that, but it's also, I think what he was trying to say is that there was no demonic possession going on. He wasn't possessed when he killed Got them. It. So he's taking responsibility. Claiming kind of, yeah. I mean, he literally said, I am the demon. Okay. <laughs> you know, so he was taking responsibility for it. But I think like, I think he was just trying to say that like he hadn't been possessed the way that the Lutz family claimed that there was like this demonic Totally makes sense. Obsession okay. yeah. thing going on. I was just in a fighting mood, I guess. Um, another thing that irks me is when people like Butch blame dead family members for oh, committing yeah. a crime. It, you know, it made Disgusting. me think. I know, it's fucking repulsive. Uh, it made me think of that Netflix documentary that we watched where the, um, I'm totally blinking on their names now, um, but it just came out and mm -hmm. like uh, Chris Watts. That's his name, I think. Oh, the American when the, the yeah he American murder them. next door yeah something like that. He killed his wife and children, his pregnant wife and children, yes. and then he has the fucking nerve to claim that she actually killed the children yep. and that he killed her in a rage. Yes, I remember watching that and I was just like shaking my head, like what a piece of shit. And my sister texted me after watching it and she was like, "What the actual fuck? The yeah. balls on this dude?" She was like, "That is like saying." If Brett, my husband, she was like, that's mm -hmm. like if Brett killed you and your children and then claimed that you actually killed your children, that is so unbelievable. See ya, it Brett. Would not, yeah, there's no one would believe that. No one. There is, I think that character wise, it doesn't get any worse than that. Mm -mm. Well, that was a really good story. Oh, thanks. Should we address the fact that this is our season two finale? I know. It's so weird. I know. It feels literally. Congrats <laughs> like, to us. Yeah. Congratulations, <laughs> Anna. Um, it feels like yesterday that we filmed that other one that, mm -hmm. or recorded the season one finale. Our season one. Yeah. yeah. Time flies when you're having a good time. Talking about murder. Talking about murder. Yeah. It is fun to some people, hence why people are listening. It's just a morbid interest. So this is going to be our last time where we get to record in sweats with no makeup. My zit patches on my our, cheeks. And I'm not, I don't have any patches on my zits. I just have exposed zits. Just free balling zits. I'm just free balling it. Because um, now in season three, we're going to have a YouTube channel where we record. We're going like to be stars. Eventually. We're going to be stars, baby. But um, it's going to require like looking pretty. That sucks, but it's going to be worth it, and it's going to be really fun. It's going to be super fun. Do you think that it would be fun to do, like, always do our hair and makeup? Duh. But then, like, one where we just don't. Like, casual Fridays? Or do you feel like that's putting us out like a lamb to the slaughter? No, I love that. Just for people to be like, ew. I love the relatability. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think we should do it. Okay, but it can't be casual Fridays. It's only doing it once a week. Yeah, but it's just kind of like... But that's what they say at the office, you know? Yeah. I'm we'll just have one day. One day, period. Like one episode out of the season? Where we look like the real us. Okay. I think that's good. 
Sure. Fair. I'm happy we decided that. Well, I love oh, you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is where we decide to stop talking. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's All right. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, Ash. I love you. Okay. Love you too. See you in a few weeks. Are you saying that to me? I, I think. Or to listeners. the crowd or to or the listeners. To all those I mean, people yeah, listening. To all the people. See you in a few weeks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, love you. Bye. Love you too. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.